fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and our world. Heard on KCB. Heard on KCB. Heard on KCB. Heard on I'm Al Warren, and we got uh, Mr. Uh, David Rose Martino. Oh, it's back to Rose. Yeah, Rose. Rose ah. before Christmas, right? Yeah. A rose. A couple of po- roses. Poinsettia. Poinsettia. Poinsettia? Well, you see, ever see how it's spelled, right? It's yeah. spelled Poinsettia or whatever. Poinsettia. Right? Hmm. Yeah, look at the spelling. And I always look at it and think, well, that, that's not Poinsettia. <laughs> not how you're spelling it, right? This is my American accent, right? American accent. American. Well, I'm from I'm from the Boston area, so you know. Boston. So you'd have Boston. Set set all. Yes, set A big set a set a set a set a baby. That's right. Well, let's see. Now we're doing a, another mystery today, and huh. it's not about JFK. Really? Yeah. No. This is the murder. <laughs> At the Royal Albert, and it's a Daniel Jacobus mystery, and it's book eight. Wow. So the author's with us to tell us what, what what's going on here, because I don't know. So, Mr. Uh, Gerald Elias, how are you doing? Doing great. Nice to be on your show. Yeah. Well, you know, it has its moments. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if they do. Yeah, you know, there's always a few minutes there that's worth listening to. The rest of it's just, you know. When I saw this originally, I thought this is completely a different type of theme in a mystery. I never hear them about. Uh, nowadays, everybody's, uh, you know, some it's a housewife that's doing a cozy, or there's always some storyline that's completely, completely the same. You know, I find a lot of them to be similar. Some of their characters are different. But so this is... Uh, kind of a music-themed mystery. What made you come up with that? Well, I've had a long career as a professional musician. I was in the Boston Symphony for quite a few years and associate concertmaster of the Utah Symphony, and I've had my own string quartet, and I conduct an orchestra from time to time. So I've been a professional musician since uh, getting out of school. And uh, it just occurred to me that, uh, you know, there are so many situations where musicians are inclined to want to kill each other that... uh, you know, I had a lot of fertile material for, for murder mysteries. And uh, since I was a kid, uh, I've always been a big fan of murder mysteries. So, you know, the two things just seem to fit together like hand in glove. Well, they certainly do. You know, um, I was in the music department for a long time and uh, went for my degree. And uh, a lot of people do want to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a... It's a closely kept secret, but uh, what I'd like to do is uh, think of my, my books as sort of an 
expose of what goes on in the dark corners of the classical music world. And there are a lot of dark corners. Yeah, I was surprised. I was really a naive kid when I when I went started in a college music program and I transferred into UW Seattle and and getting into the department and it was like a little soap opera in a way. There's so many personalities right up to the professors teaching to the other students. It was pretty amazing. But overall good. How you know, but you being um musically inclined and working in the business in the classical world, how do you make it so that the writing isn't above let's say a, a common person that isn't in that world? You know, that's a really good question, and that was one of the two major challenges I had, because on one hand, I really wanted to make the narrative and the facts true to the profession so that my colleagues in, in the music world can read it and say, yeah, that's exactly the way it is. But at the same time, you know, the, the music world has its own vocabulary, so to speak, and I had to really make sure that it was not only understandable but entertaining uh, to your, you know, standard uh, mystery lover. So I I would have other people uh, read my manuscripts who were not musicians, you know, and make sure that uh, it was uh, comprehensible and enjoyable at the same time. So that 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 really was a challenge, and uh, I think so far pretty successful. Um, and you know, to to complement the uh, the book series, uh, we've made audio books out of a few of them. Most recently, Murder at the Royal Albert, which includes excerpts of live performances of the music that um, takes place that's described in the books. And uh, I've had the honor and pleasure of having performed in quite a few of those excerpts, including with the, the Boston Symphony. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a combination of, of two uh, different worlds. And, you know, I, I always reflect upon those great mystery writers who I really enjoy reading, who can bring you into a world that you're not familiar with at first, but by the time you finish the book, uh, you feel like, you know, you're part of that neighborhood. And I'm thinking of authors like, uh, Walter Mosley or Donna Leon or Dick Francis, uh, things like that. And so anyway, that's, you know, that's a, a really good question you ask. And I think that's a challenge, not only from my perspective as someone who's trying to blend in the classical music world with, with uh, fiction and with mystery, but any, any good uh, mystery writer, I think, has the same kind of challenge. Oh, yeah, totally, because you don't want it to be like a total information dump exactly you know where where they're just like reading a not like it, it turns into like some non-fiction you know a book about how things are done technically and why people say words and stuff but you want people to understand and in order to make it real like you said those people in that in that world have that vocabulary so they're going to talk that way so yeah that's a, that's a really fine line to try and try and accomplish yeah and it has to be done not with just endless explanations by the author, but it has to occur in the action itself and in the dialogue between the characters so that it really seems organic, natural, spontaneous, and uh, ultimately interesting. 
Yeah, and that that would be the trick. That would be the key to the writing mm-hmm. if you can if you can pull that off, and uh, you know someone like Dave could read it and understand it. Then you've got to pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of reminds me of a techno thriller. Yeah, um, yeah. Though with techno techno thrillers, sometimes authors get into really really detailed stuff about weapons of mass destruction and you know all kinds of uh, computer stuff. Um, and I, I try to, I don't say I keep that as at a minimum, but I only use that to kind of serve the narrative to keep the story going. So, you know, you might end up learning something about classical music uh, as you read the books, but that's not the objective. The objective is to provide readers with something that is entertaining, compelling, enjoyable, um, and diverting. So that's that's my goal. Nothing profound. It sounds like my writing. <laughs> but if if you are writing this mystery and uh, you kind of got this, this this series going on, is there something that under is it something under that that the, the entertainment part and the story itself that you want people to take away from the book? Yeah, um, I think regardless of the specific issues of any of my books, you know, and they all kind of revolve around this this classical music uh, um, conflict. I, I want people to get a sense of human nature, that it acts in such interesting and sometimes unpredictable ways, uh, but ultimately we are all kind of one family of, of humans and we try to resolve misunderstandings as best we can, but of course in murder mysteries that doesn't often end as everyone would like. But I think that there's something, as you suggest, that's a little bit deeper than just having a, a fun story to read. And I, I think that's it is endemic in all kinds of writing, not only mysteries, and not only just fiction, but nonfiction as well, where you get high-quality writing and you sense something about humanity and about yourself that is at least thought-provoking and potentially life-changing. And, and, how, and how did that affect you then? I always say this, especially in fiction writers, because you create the story beginning to end. You develop all the characters, the arcs, what happens to them, how they act and react. And in, in essence, you're really kind of living through that story as you write it, however long it takes you to write one of the books. And you get to understand something about yourself as well as humans. So what what did you learn about yourself in doing a book like this or even the series so far? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the protagonist in all these books. His name is Daniel Jacobus. And uh, several years ago, I was giving a book talk at a, a bookstore, I think it was in Albuquerque or Tucson, I can't quite remember. And I introduced Jacobus as a curmudgeonly reclusive and blind violin teacher, at which point the manager of the store said, oh, so Jerry, does that mean it's autobiographical? <laughs> at, which, <laughs> at which point, you know, everyone in the audience started chuckling. And before I could reply, he said, oh, of course not. You're not blind. So anyway, uh, I've got this main character, and he's undergone three various, three different tragedies in in his lifetime. One is that his parents were 
um, sent to the extermination camps at Auschwitz. A second was that as a child he was in a violin competition and was sexually abused. And the third was that um, he lost his uh, sense of sight uh, overnight in it's called foveomacular dystrophy, which is, a, in English, it's a sudden blindness syndrome. So he had these three tragedies. Nevertheless, uh, he has maintained a sense of humor, although at times it's kind of sarcastic, bitter humor. He has maintained his sense of integrity and ethics and humanity, uh, even though he's a, kind of a, a crusty old fart. And, of course, he's an incredible amateur sleuth, uh, so he gets to solve all these mysteries, even though he's dragged into them kicking and screaming by his, his two friends. But to answer your question, in developing this character, it gave me kind of a different outlook, a different perspective on relationships with other people. Even though Jacobus is, is totally fictional, I started thinking about how would I feel under certain circumstances? You know, how does one respond to someone who's undergoing uh, something tragic in their own lives? You know, as these books came out one after the other, it kind of gave me a slightly different angle uh, of insight into this one particular character. And as a result, I think, you know, I've grown out of these books as much as the character himself has grown. Now, is it is it a challenge writing about a blind main character? Because, you know, you're always trying to add touch, taste, smell, and especially sight into into the prose. How do you deal with that challenge? You're, you're damn right. It was a challenge. <laughs> and I, I mentioned earlier that I had two challenges in writing the books. One was, you know, to be true to the profession at the same time as making it accessible to, to any reader. The other challenge was creating this blind character. And if I had known what the hell I was doing when I first started writing this series, I might not have made him blind because, as you say, um, you know, I have to rely on his other senses in order to create the environment around him. But that was a challenge I really relished after a time because so much of what we read uh, in any kinds of books is visual. It is you know, what, what is sitting on the desk, you know, what kind of light there is, you know, what the person looks like, who the character is talking to, all kinds of things like that. I found that by, make, by opening up my own mind to how we experience what's around us made my writing a lot more creative. As you say, you know, smell, touch, and especially for Jacobus, who is a great musician, hearing kind of took him above the level of everyone else with those senses so that he was able to solve crimes that were baffling to others because he was so capable. So that was a, a really great challenge. And I had some help in a way because I have a very good old dear friend. Uh, she and I grew up on Long Island together and played in community orchestras and youth orchestras as teenagers. And over the course of her teen years, she started to losing she started losing her sense of sight by the time she was in her 20s she, she was totally blind nevertheless she continued to play the violin and the viola not only by herself but in orchestras and in string quartets and to this day she continues to play 
She had a career as a high school guidance counselor and was totally unfazed by her blindness. And the way she did it was she would listen to music and memorize it. So she has a library of memorized violin parts in her head, and you ask her to play a symphony or you ask her to play a Beethoven string quartet, and she can do it. So if some of what I wrote have written in my uh, Jacobus series seems far-fetched, it ain't. Um, it can be done. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to my friend uh, Myra Ross, who, uh, you know, set a wonderful example, both in terms of being able to do something if you try hard enough and for having the, the character to, to do it. Well, well, how do you experience your characters, and particularly your main character here, Daniel? How, how, how do you see that character, and do you hear them? Do you see them, um, feel them? Like, what's, what's your relationship like? Well, all the characters in my books are composites of people that I've known and worked with, so even the bad guys, uh, though I don't tell anyone, who their composites of. But for Jacobus, you know, certainly Myra was part of his character. But another part was uh, there was a great uh, violinist named uh, uh, Alexander Schneider, referred to as Sasha Schneider, who was just, he was a, a violinist in uh, the Budapest String Quartet for many years. He was a great educator, a great pedagogue, and he also was the conductor of uh, a youth orchestra I played in when I was in high school. And when I worked with him, it was a life-changing event for me because he was just so passionate about the music and at the same time uh, demanded uh, incredibly high standards. So that combination of passion and demand kind of combined into Daniel Jacobus. How do you write the dialogue for a character like that? How do you get into the head of that person? The hard part was the first book because I had to really get to understand Jacobus uh, and how he spoke and how he thought. You know, after that, once I had established him and his two close friends, uh, the rest of the books, you know, had had that weight off of my shoulders because I already kind of knew who he was. But I established him as someone who is so honest uh, and straightforward that he has no filters. What he says is what he means. And it might be painful to those who are listening, but, you know, he's as honest as the day is long. At the same time, he has a kind of a sarcastic sense of humor. He likes to use puns. He likes to do uh, word riddles, things like that. So, you know, on one hand, he's amusing, but on the other, uh, on the other hand, he can be quite dark. You know, I just think of him as sort of a, you know, I don't want to say extension of myself, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I've, I've spent decades, for example, not only performing, but, you know, teaching. And uh, Jacobus is basically a, a teacher. And sometimes some of the things that come out of his mouth were things that I would have said to students had I not had, you know, the, a filter of diplomacy, sensitivity, or, or politeness. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my students wouldn't say that. No, no. In fact, I, I have, uh, let me add one thing. Uh, last Saturday, I was conducting a concert in uh, Salt Lake City, and um, it was a small chamber orchestra. And almost all the violinists in the orchestra, who are now professional musicians, 
were once my students years ago. And it's so gratifying to see them prosper and thrive as professionals. And some of them, you know, they come up to me and say, you know, thank you so much. And by the way, we don't need to be afraid of you anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So, well, as a musician, do you think, you know, that, uh, that, that melody and rhythm of music, do, do you think that helps you to maybe hear um, the, the melody and the rhythm of language in your mind as you're writing prose? Yes. Boy, you guys are asking good questions today. Did you did <laughs> you kind of time. did you prep for this somehow? No, or? never. No, never. <laughs> Absolutely not. No <laughs> prep ever. Yes, you know, inflection and rhythm are incredibly, uh, you know, we you know that important in music. It's essential, but also in dialogue. You know, you never want to have a character speaking in what a reader would perceive as a monotone. You really need to inflect it with imaginative and creative adjectives, adverbs, verbs. You know, so it's, it, as you said earlier, so it's not like an academic recitation. It really has to have ups and downs, and not only in the dialogue, but in the actual structure of the book. Uh, you mentioned that you had been in a music program in, in college, so you'll know what Sonata Allegro form is. My first book in the series, Devil's Trill, is in Sonata Allegro form. So it does have what's, you know, what we refer to as the exposition, development, and recapitulation, which is, seemed to me to be as true in the structure of the book as it is in a sonata or a concerto or a symphony. So, yeah, I think along musical lines, both as a musician and as a writer. And so you end each book in a perfect cadence. Ah, <laughs> uh, you, you're not listening to the same music I'm listening to. <laughs> uh, uh, no, in fact, you know, one of my books uh, ends with the question, um, and that would be Death and the Maiden. Uh, what's going to happen next? What really did happen? You know, I generally I like um, complete endings to stories, but sometimes the story itself kind of drives the author to create endings which are not as, you know, cut and dry. Yeah, you know, and endings are as true with writers as with composers. How you begin and end a piece of music or begin and end a book is really impactful because that's the first and last thing the audience hears or reads. And, you know, with, with uh, literary agents or editors or publishers, they'll all say your first page is crucial. You know, if a publisher, if you send in a manuscript and the publisher doesn't like the first page, chances are they're not going to read the second page. So, uh, yes, how you begin and end is, is, is really important. That's not to say, you know, an ending has to be everyone lives happily ever after, but it does have to say to the reader, this was really worth reading. And uh, th that's what I've tried to do with my books. Um, and with each one of them, the ending in my draft, one draft after another, the ending will change many, many times before I'm satisfied with it. Okay. It's not like rock and roll. We repeat and fade. <laughs> right. Fade, fade, fade. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, um, my sister used to watch American Bandstand every day. And, you know, she would stick me in front of the television and force me to watch it. And um, 
you know, and every song was fade, fade, fade. And I kept thinking, you know, and I, I was starting to play the violin at that time. And the music I played always had an ending to it. And I never have understood why, you know, so many pop songs end just fading away. Do you, do you have an explanation for that? I have no explanations for anything. <laughs> Every year I live longer, it, I have more questions. Yeah, well, there you go. That's good, too. We just know it had a good beat and you could dance to it. <laughs> right? That's the old American bandstand. But yeah. speaking, of, speaking of songs fading away, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the uh, new audio book. Uh, that just came out for Murder at the Royal Albert, because there is some fading away of the music in that. The idea for that book came when I was playing with the Boston Symphony at Royal Albert Hall in uh, 2015. We were on a, a concert tour, and we were playing Mahler's Sixth Symphony. Now, I don't know if any of your listeners know Mahler's Sixth Symphony, but it's perhaps the most schizophrenic piece of music ever written. You know, just it goes from ecstasy to severe depression, back and forth. Uh, within seconds. And in this symphony, uh, Mahler asked for an instrument that's never used anywhere else. In fact, he invented it. It's a huge hammer. And he wanted, in the last movement, the hammer to be whacked as hard as it could be on a, a big wooden box so that it would sound like the thud of a huge axe. And these three hammer blows were supposedly reflective of three tragedies in Mahler's life. Mahler was so superstitious that he was afraid if he used all three hammer blows, the third one would signify his own death. So he took it out of the score. So in my book, the orchestra, the audience, even the conductor doesn't know if he's going to want the third hammer blow. And that's a crucial moment in the story. And to complement this in the audiobook, I was able to get permission from all kinds of music ensembles, including the Boston Symphony, to use excerpts of live performances that are woven into the fabric of the narrative so that it's not just like, you know, here's your lesson in classical music. It really kind of bubbles up from underneath the reading of the book. And then at that precise moment where the hammer comes down, that's where something happens that I'm not going to tell you what happens. Feels <laughs> that mm. spoiler. Um, and I've, you know, I've got like a dozen different little excerpts throughout the whole book that are meaningful to the story, and that uh, I'm very proud to have uh, performed myself. In fact, it was at that rehearsal at Royal Albert Hall of Mahler's Six that I got the idea for that book. I'm sure you've asked other authors how they get ideas for their books. I get them in so many ways, you know, we don't have time to talk about it. But for that book, it like occurred to me in a flash at that rehearsal. And fortunately, the conductor didn't realize that I wasn't paying attention at all to what we were rehearsing, but I was just thinking about the book. You know, that becomes the focal point of Murder at the Royal Albert. And, uh, I don't know if, if any – have you guys ever been to Royal Albert Hall at all? Ever? No. London? No. Well – No, never it's, did. It's like twice the size of any concert hall in the U.S. that I've ever played in. And it's sort of in the shape of a, a huge wedding cake. You know, and just imagine yourself inside a huge wedding cake. 
and, you know, like looking up into the hot balcony, which is about a half mile away, and it's totally circular. And unlike concert halls here, the floor of the auditorium has no seats. People stand for the concert. So you'll get like 1,500 people crammed together on the floor of this hall, and you've got these balconies that go up to the sky, and you've got these weird lights, you know, coming down from the ceiling. Um, and the orchestra is on these tiers, so we're, we're sort of banked up the side of, you know, a pie wedge of this uh, concert hall. So it's really unlike any kind of place that I've ever played. The combination of that setting and that music that we were playing was just so evocative, and it was it, it just all of a sudden, I don't know if any authors uh, out there uh, get inspiration from from a, a setting uh, like I did for for that book, but it it really was was pretty uh, profound at that moment. Oh, I'm sure. Did you use yeah. a hammer too, or did you use an axe and cut someone's head <laughs> off? <laughs> you mean in my book? Yeah, I'm not... for the for the audio, right? Uh, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, you you will hear the axe coming down. You will hear that. Uh, but what happens at that moment, I'm not going to tell you guys. Uh-huh. You're going to have to read it. Secret. Anyway, it's it's a, a terrific audio book. And, you know, I don't really know of any other audio books, except the two others in, in my series here, that combine music and narrative the way this, this book does. So it's, it's, it's kind of unique. And, um, you know, if you have nothing to do on a rainy afternoon like we often have in Seattle, or you're driving cross-country, or you just want to get away from the football game, I think it would be a, a, a fun listen. Absolutely. Well, with including the music in the audiobook, I was just curious, was, was it hard to uh, like navigate copyright with, with the different symphonies, or how, how did you go about that, to include it in, into the audiobook? First of all, I'll tell you the easy part. Uh, quite a bit of the music are excerpts of performances of either chamber music or solo playing that I've done. So there was no question about copyright for them because it's, it's my stuff, you know, whether it's a string quartet or chamber orchestra or violin piano. But I did request permission from my colleagues in that. And uh, as they like to say in contracts, their permission was not unreasonably withheld. <laughs> um, with the Boston Symphony, it was a different issue. Um, because there are copyright infringement laws out on the books, and I did not want to infringe upon that. So I was in close communication with the uh, symphony's artistic administrator. And turns out that, um, you know, I was permitted to use up to three minutes of any performance without having to worry about either copyright issues or or payments, which would have been substantial otherwise. So with that in mind, I, I, you know, take the Mahler Sixth Symphony, for example. It's 90 minutes long. So from that 90 minutes, I had to distill three essential minutes of music um, to include in the audio book. And even from that point, that was just the starting point. Then I had to determine exactly under what line of the audio file narrative, the text file, I should start that music rolling in order to arrive at the exact moment where the narrator has the, the, the proper word to say. 
you know, for the, the music to come to a peak. So that, that was really my job, other than writing the book, to involve myself in the, the audio book. And once I had determined that, then I spent a whole day sitting down with our recording engineer, who has knows all the buttons and whistles on that technology that um, look like outer space to me. And so we worked a whole day together, uh, just honing honing the the exact timing and volume levels for both the uh, the text and the music. So it was a it was a really great uh, project to do, and I think it, it really came out great. I, I have to say so myself, and so I'm thankful to uh, Jason Brown, the recording engineer, and Alison Larkin, who was both the producer and the amazing narrator of the book, who could do like a dozen different voices, um, you know, at the drop of a hat. So anyway, fun project, and uh, I, I, I think it's really a... a an engaging mystery as well. Now, when you're doing a series like this, um, are, have you got it kind of planned out in your mind how far this series is going to go and how many mysteries you have? Or are you just creating them one at a time as you go? When I first started writing Devil's Trail, which is the first book in the series, it was originally going to be, you won't believe this, it was going to be sort of a method book for violin students. You know, not only about how to play the violin, but also how to prepare for auditions, how to memorize music, how to deal with performance stress, how to avoid injury playing an instrument. But I figured, you know, that that's going to be kind of a boring book. So I wove this story about a stolen Stradivarius from Carnegie Hall about it, and I created this character, Daniel Jacobus. You know, so it, at first it was like 90% pedagogy and 10% murder mystery. But over the course of the next 12 years, which is, was how long it took to get this published, it underwent a dozen significant, substantial rewrites. By the time I got done with all the rewrites, it was like now 90% traditional whodunit and 10%, you know, violin stuff. And finally, after several aborted efforts, my intrepid uh, agent, Josh Getzler, managed to land us a deal with um, Minotaur Books. And uh, when I got the call from Josh that they wanted my book, you know, I was on cloud nine because I never imagined after 12 years that it would ever see the light of day. But his follow-up question was really important and unexpected. He said, they want a second book. Are you interested in that? At which point I said, give me 10 seconds. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I had to start thinking more long term because the two books turned into four books. And then I got another publisher, it became six books. And then I got yet a third publisher for the series with level best books, and it became an eight book series. So, yes, I had to sort of think long term. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that we were talking about book endings before. I had a certain ending for Devil's Trill, the first book in the series. But then I started working with the editor um, at Minotaur, and he said, Jerry, you're going to have to change the ending now that we have a series. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because 
it's really important to think long-term in developing a character, especially your protagonist, um, if we're going to extend the series. And, you know, that, that made a lot of sense. So, you know, instead of Jacobus beginning the, the Devil's Trill really kind of depressed and down and nasty and ending the, the book with him being upbeat and happy and life is grand, you know, I had to kind of gauge that, calibrate that a lot more so that over the course of time, you know, we could see some development in his character, but yet maintaining the essence of his character. So that, that was quite a challenge. At the same time, you know, going from one publisher to the next and going from one story to the next, it wasn't like a lot of the TV series we see these days where you have to watch the whole season to know what's finally going to happen. Um, each of my books is a story in itself. You can read the book in, books in any order that you want um, and not miss a beat with it. There are certain developments among the characters, Daniel Jacobus and his two um, best friends, Yumi Shinagawa, who is a former student who over the course of time becomes uh, an inter internationally renowned violinist in her own right. And Nathaniel Williams, who's a corpulent African-American uh, good friend of Jacobus, who they initially played trios together as uh, young people. And then Nathaniel Williams went off into a different field of uh, being an expert at retrieving uh, stolen artworks and valuable instruments like Stradivarius instruments. So over the course of time, their relationships do develop, uh, but not to the extent that you need to read the books in a certain order. You'll know who these characters are from page one of, of each of the books. And there's just a little bit sufficient but not too much backstory in each book so that you get a sense of where all these guys are, are coming from. Where do you think it's going to go? Like, how far do you think you'll, you'll keep this going? I'm not sure. If you read more uh, Murder at the Royal Albert, you'll get a sense of where the series is going because of the ending of that book. Um, but I have written other books as well uh, that are totally different from the Daniel Jacobus series. You know, I lived in Utah for over 30 years and fell in love with the desert there. And I wrote a Western mystery called Roundtree Days that is kind of a riff on, do you know Craig Johnson's Longmire series? Yeah, it was kind of inspired not only by, by his books, but by uh, a very serendipitous visit to where the Longmire Days Festival took place in Wyoming. The small town there where the, the, the TV series was shot, I happened to arrive there unbeknownst to me on Longmire's Day weekend, where it was just packed to the gills, mainly with senior citizens who were Longmire's <laughs> fans. And it was just surreal. I mean, this whole weekend was all... Longmire Day activities like horseshoes and rodeos and softball games between the cowboys and Indians, and it was just one thing after another. And I started thinking, you know, these people are such fanatics about this TV series. There might be this line over which reality becomes fantasy and fiction. And what would happen if that 
took place. So my story, uh, Roundtree Days, is kind of a similar setting, uh, but the the fans of this TV series think that the TV hero is the real sheriff. And when there's a kidnapping and an arson and a murder, they kind of look toward this doofus <laughs> who in real life doesn't know a damn thing about mystery solving or crime solving. And it's up to this, my, the true hero, Jefferson Dance, uh, to, to, solve, to solve these mysteries in this little town celebrating this, this kooky festival. So that, that, uh, that book did, did quite well. It was a, a Silver Falchian Award finalist uh, this past year, and the result of which is that I've been asked to write a sequel to it. So I've got that series going on, which is totally different. There's no music at all in this series. Uh, and I've written uh, some other books as well, but... Well, you know, it sounds like my life. You know, I can't distinguish between fantasy and reality. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then you'll love that book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, how, how do you keep track of uh, the continuity in your books and especially in, in your series? Uh, do you have a series Bible? Do you have tools? Uh, how, how do you do that? Not really. Um, there is some kind of structural integrity to the the Jacobus series. For example, the first four books in the series, I'll name them, Devil's Trill, Dance Macabre, Death and the Maiden, and Death and Transfiguration. Those are all pieces of classical music that have to do with death and that were all inspired by prior stories. So what I've done with those four pieces of music is use them kind of as a template the music and the stories that preceded them in order to kind of develop the contemporary mysteries in the Jacobus series. The next four books in the series were based upon the beloved series of violin concertos by Antonio Vivaldi called The Four Seasons. Uh, I'm sure everyone has heard them, whether it's in a concert hall or in an elevator or in a department store, I mean, we hear his music from the Four Seasons all the time. And what a lot of listeners don't know about the Four Seasons is that those concertos were based upon sonnets that Vivaldi himself wrote about uh, life in the countryside, you know, celebrating the harvest, getting drunk, being uh, oppressed by pestilence, or frozen weather in the winter with ice cracking and slipping on the ice. You know, there's so much musical imagery in those concertos. They're just remarkable pieces of music, even though they're written for a very small orchestra. It's just incredible stuff. So I used the music from the Four Seasons and the stories behind them to create modern metaphors for what the stories from the music told me. For example, in Murder at the Royal Albert, I do use a lot of Vivaldi both in the in the print book and in the audio book because the last movement of of autumn, which is when this book take my book takes place, is about the hunt and the pre the prey in Vivaldi's music is a hare or a fox doesn't really say but in my book the prey here is a human and the whole book is about the hunt. Uh, it starts out in the same way as Vivaldi's Autumn begins, which is a celebration of the harvest. And you'll see Jacobus in London in one of his rare 
happy, contented moods. You almost never see them like that. But it's just like in, in Vivaldi's concerto. And over the course of time and over the course of the concerto, the music uh, morphs from this celebration into a hunt. And I've tried to do the same thing with, with my book. So that's how kind of, uh, to answer your question, uh, how I've structured uh, the whole series in, in terms of having sort of a basic uh, template for my ideas. Now let's talk about where people find you like the sides of bar or some places <laughs> like that. Do you have like, um, let's see, internet, you have website, social media? Yeah, I have a, a new super duper website that was designed for me by, as you would guess, a young 20 year old. Um, and it's called www.mysteriesandmusic.com. And I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, and LinkedIn. But I have to confess, you know, the social media stuff I try to keep up with, but I am still pretty much stuck in the 20th century. Hate to admit, I'm trying to get there. Um, but I would be happy to have people visit my website, check it out. And I think there's a place you can click if you want to be on my newsletter, or if you want to follow me or things like that. So yeah. And, and here's one thing. You know, I value communication. I think one of the great things that I hadn't expected about writing books is that I've gotten to know people both in the book business, uh, in the media, and most of all, you know, doing book events, like going to bookstores or libraries or book clubs. You get to meet the nicest, most interesting people doing stuff like that. So to me... Books are about communication, one-to-one, person-to-person. Even in this age of Zoom, uh, there's nothing that beats getting to know people. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel extremely fortunate that I've lucked out by having uh, these books published. Uh, I'm thankful to my publishers, my editors, my agents, and to guys like you who are willing to sit down and talk to me for an hour. I love hearing from readers, even readers who don't like my books. I like hearing from them, and I always respond within 24 hours. Um, you know, I've got a flexible schedule, and I, I think that's worth its weight in gold is uh, communicating with people. Well, yeah, and, and until you get the, my fans following you, then they're going <laughs> to – you're not going to like that so much, but that's all right. Okay, I'll, have, I will refer yeah. them to you. No, I just – we give everybody Dave's email address. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> when they're angry, uh, send it to Dave. He likes dealing with that. He's in karate, <laughs> martial arts, so he's, he's ready, you know. He can handle <laughs> ready it. Ready to go. But we'll have everything up on our website so people can find you with one click. That makes it easy. And, of course, they, your book and your website. And uh, and I guess you'll be at uh, Left Coast Crimes in Seattle in April? That's the plan. Yep. I'm, I'm registered. I will be there. You guys going to be there? Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's the first show I'm, I'll be at since COVID. I've been hiding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Haven't we all? Well, you know. For the most part, yeah. Yeah, well. I, you know, I don't care for people very much anyway. So. <laughs> You're just like Jacobus. Yeah. You're going to love that guy. Yeah, I'm a nasty old guy. I sit with my dog and 
and complain about people. No. Well, <laughs> but uh, you're not blind, right? Uh, well, <laughs> well, not quite. By, no. by the way, Jacobus does have a big, ugly, old, stupid bulldog named Trotsky. And uh, the reason they named him Trotsky is that he's so big he can't run ski. Uh, <laughs> sorry uh, yeah, yeah. yeah don't don't get into the comedy writing how's that okay well you, you you can you can delete that out of the uh no that will be like one of the features that will be the the ad listen to this show right Boy. yeah you'll get a lot of listeners that way yeah they'll be boycotting like crazy but you know the anger is good we like anger um, well, anyway, so now the book, Murder at the Royal Albert, and it's a Daniel Jacobus mystery, and our guest, Gerald Elias, thank you for being here. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jerry. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com. HouseOfMystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.